Hi there. Welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm your host, Dr. Paul McConnell, Chair of the Ethics Committee of ESIAC and a Senior Honorary Clinical Lecturer at the University of Glasgow. We're back discussing ethical dilemmas uh, in our specialty today, um, and I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk about a matter of justice, ethical resource allocation in anaesthesia and intensive care. Uh, and I'm really privileged to have Dr. Daniel Bryden, who is Dean of the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine and a consultant in intensive care medicine from the Sheffield Teaching Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. Um, and we are going to look at this really key ethical issue. Dr. Bryden, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me, Paul, and hello. So I think actually, just to kick things off, probably one of the easiest but also diffi most difficult questions are, what would you class as a resource in healthcare that needs ethical allocation? It's an interesting question because to a certain extent, we, we actually operate in a resource limited environment all the time. But most people's focus in recent times has obviously been around the pandemic and the resource of intensive care beds and ventilators particularly and nurses to look after the patients in those beds but certainly within the UK we've had for a long long time um, organisations like NICE, the National Institute of Care and Excellence that have been looking at how we allocate limited resources particularly new medications in a state funded healthcare system that's got a limited budget so resource can be anything that is restricted from people, equipment, um, drugs, supplies, it's all within consideration, really. Yeah, I think that was one thing we saw at the start of the pandemic. Lots of talk about the need for ventilators without any sort of reflection on the need for people to operate those ventilators um, as well. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned people. I wonder if we could take that a wee step further. Do you think expertise is a resource? Well, again, it, it, it's an interesting question because if you talk to people who have expertise, they will obviously say, yes, it's a resource. And if you think about high vigilance specialties of which nursing and particularly expert nursing like in critical care or anaesthesia as a profession is a high vigilance specialty, then those individuals will say, well, we have expertise, even though you may not see a lot happening, our expertise is in, is in the vigilance. But within healthcare economic terms, that's really, really difficult to measure and is very, very often um, not really calculated. So this, this concept of having expertise to prevent harm is, isn't really well understood within healthcare at the moment at all. Um, and Alison Leary, who's a UK professor of, of um, health policy, she does a lot of work on that. I, I remember when I started out in anaesthesia and one of our senior consultants said that anaesthesia is 98% boredom and 2% absolute <laughs> panic. And we get paid a lot of money for that 2%. Yes, that, yes. I think that's fair. Well, I, I think it's really interesting that the focus is on the 2% because actually what you might say is that 98% is the 98% of occasions when the other 2% isn't happening, you know, that, that you're not making the ratio something like 60-40 or 70-30. 
that the expertise of vigilance is really, really important. Taking that in mind then, do you think that doctors should be employed more from the neck down, following guidelines and protocols? Um, or do you think experience and deviating from the guidelines are a more important part of being a professional? Oh, that's really interesting as well. I, I think to a certain extent, we have moved to a safer healthcare system by the provision of guidelines and standards. Of that, there is no doubt. We've we've gone from a free-for-all to a more regulated and restricted system. One of the things we have got is the profusion of guidelines. There are almost too many guidelines now. There's no quality control of the guidelines um, in understanding their, their applicability or their relevance. And people sometimes can struggle with, with the, the conflict of, of often what is appears to be complementary but turns out to be contradictory guidance. So we've kind of swung the pendulum a little bit too far the other way in terms of the amount of guidance. But of course, I would always say, well, patients don't read the guidance. So the patient doesn't come along, particularly with our population that's older, frailer, got more comorbidities, that doesn't come along and go, I have diabetes and a septic toe. But there isn't anything in the guidance about the fact that I've got aortic stenosis <laughs> and I've got, you know, I'm on I'm on 10 medications with polypharmacy. And that's where what I loosely term the doctoring comes in, which is the stuff that you need the doctors and the, the brain bit for, which is to kind of sort of sift through all of that guidance and come to a sensible, reasoned and defendable conclusion. And and that's what I think we're paid the danger money for, so to speak. Yeah, I think that that's it. I remember thinking that um, your expertise comes when your patient leads you off piste, so to speak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so getting back to sort of more conventional thoughts of resources in general, um, we recognise that, um, you know, uh, particularly during times of COVID, um, that we were resource poor. Um, do you think that our practice is different when we're resource rich versus resource poor? Well, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that is very much the case. Um, so again, there are there are studies that look at how people make their decisions around admission to intensive care. And when you have more resource, you will be more willing to admit patients at perhaps an earlier stage of their illness, or perhaps somebody who you may be less certain about the outcome uh, with than you do when you've got a much more limited resource and then that bar goes up considerably higher and you do inadvertently introduce a form of, of, of rationing in your decision-making. Now, again, within the UK, we've had the GERFT, the Getting It Right First Time programme. That's looked at critical care and it's also looked at a number of surgical specialties. And one of the interesting things about that programme is not just in relation to critical care, but in relation to a number of those surgical specialties, there's evidence of rationing because there's there's evidence of variation, two to three times difference in parts of the UK in terms of who gets admitted to a ward or critical care for a procedure, how they're managed. And that isn't based on guidance. It's, it's felt to be based on, you know, availability of resource. So we're already doing it in an implicit way, I think. 
with that in mind then, do you think resource allocation is a role for doctors, for managers, or for politicians? Oh, again. <laughs> I quote back to a really interesting study that was done at the start of the second wave of the pandemic that was um, King's College London, Ipsos Mori um, poll. I, I don't know if you've you've seen that study. and they, yes. they had that decision choice experiment with patients. And patients trust doctors. They want us to make those decisions about resource allocation because they think we are the right people to do it. But they want us to use some understood rules and they don't want us to be left holding the can on our own or having the responsibility as, a, as an individual to make that decision. So I think it's the responsibility of the politicians to provide us with resource and negotiate with the electorate how much resource we can have. But it's down to us as the clinicians to work with the managers around the best use of that resource. And we have to advocate for that. Yeah, so the doctor's role is actually to allocate the resources that they've got uh, and to request more resource when it's obvious that it's insufficient. And the politicians and the manager's role should be to look at the ways to provide that resource. Is that sort of what you're driving at towards there? I, I mean, I, I think to a certain extent, because I'm, I'm dean of, a, of a, a faculty which is effectively a medical charity. So mm -hmm. there is a limit to how much the UK World Colleges, medical world colleges and faculties can go outside that charitable remit. Mm -hmm. But but it is the role of politicians to negotiate with the public about taxation and how much money is going to be spent on healthcare. It shouldn't be the role of the doctors, it should be our role to make it clear what we can do with the resource mm -hmm. we have. So with that in mind, do you think that resource allocation is a source of moral anguish and injury? And what can we do to try and prevent that? I think there is, again, really good evidence from the pandemic that that is absolutely the case, particularly amongst all grades of healthcare staff, that, that our staff, not just the patients and the relatives, have suffered in the pandemic, but our staff have, because we know what care we can provide. Um, we know what care we can provide within our normal day-to-day -day practice. And when we're put under extreme circumstances where we're not able to do that, that does cause considerable harm. So yes, I think it's been a real factor um, in, pe in, in people's burnout that's been reported. So if we're thinking about resources as a whole, okay, this is almost like the, the $6 million question, who should get them? Should we think about the sickest people or should we think about the people who are most likely to survive? Or should we think about those that will improve the quickest or maybe those who will do the most good afterwards or just those that can afford it? How do you think we should, how do you think we should try and unpick this? Yeah, as again, you know, all of those are perfectly valid arguments and I think the fact that you can do a literature search and find lots and lots of papers that will prevent sort of present different variants of, of those of those groupings shows that nobody can come down with a right answer because there isn't a, a single right answer. Um, it seems to be that that the public likes the idea of saving more lives than saving life years. So it wants numbers of people to have their lives saved rather than 
than people who've got the longest to live. So some of the ethics experiments around let's prioritise children and young people and let's prioritise people in their 40s because they are the people that are looking after the children and young people as well as the old people. Those ethics arguments probably don't go down quite as well with the public um, as they do with the ethicists who are a step removed perhaps from it. Um, if you say to the argument of let's look at comorbidities, who's who's got the best chance of recovery, that's really attractive because you'd say that turns over your intensive care beds quickly, that means you'll get more lives saved. But that kind of brings into the fact that we know again within the UK that we've got great inequalities of health provision and, and chronic health beforehand. So when you put into a pandemic situation, we know that the people that did badly, particularly badly, were the people who already had chronic health, who already had poor access to healthcare in, in the first place, and who were already socially deprived. So we've exacerbated those inequalities in the pandemic that we've built into healthcare in, in more richer, more stable times. So I think one of the problems with all of these sorts of experiments is they don't take account of the situation that you actually have on the ground in front of you. Who is the population that's being affected? What's the time scale? What do you know about the disease? Most of the stuff about triage works more for the sort of battlefield emergency room type situation. It doesn't work for what I call the chronic pandemic situation mm -hmm. we've had where the disease wasn't stable and the disease impacted particular groups of people, which then drew us into the, the risks of, of making our health inequalities even worse. So it's really, really difficult. It's it's so hard. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you talked about it, trying to save as many people. Um, you know, so ethically, we would think of that as a sort of utilitarian approach. Do you think that is too simple? Um, is that just what the uh, it's like the public having a basic grasp of just trying to do as much good as possible. I think it is too utilitarian because you know that we live in a society that wants to protect people who are vulnerable and wants to try and address some of the inequalities. And when you adopt that utilitarian approach, you then determine that some people have less chance of survival by dint of their vulnerability alone and that that's an inequality that existed before so I don't think people like that and it doesn't sit well with me because it doesn't sit well with how we are running our lives outside of a pandemic on a day-to-day -day basis you know we, we do our best to to look after vulnerable people whether they be elderly with chronic diseases or or, or you know other um disabilities. And so in a pandemic situation, if you determine that those groups of people are not of value in some way, it doesn't it doesn't sit well. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, to tie in with a sort of utilitarian uh, bit, um, some people have suggested um, what you might call a more Rawlsian approach, this idea of trying to ensure that the least well off are helped the most and that your target rather than helping the most people, should be to decrease the amount of inequality. Do you think that's something that's workable or is that just going to give us another black hole type problem? I think that approach is the sort of approach that 
that we should be doing more of in a stable situation outside of a pandemic, which we haven't done. Um, but again, I don't think it works in a, in a pandemic um, situation again at all, because you you would potentially also then run into problems of, of the other one of the other arguments, which is first come first served. Mm-hmm. Just bring in all the people that you think could be helped, fill your intensive care units up, fill your hospitals up, and then they're there and and hard luck to the rest. And that's another way of of looking at it, which again makes people feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. I think maybe there is this this um, reflection that we need to make that there is maybe no ideal way um, of doing this um, and we've got to try and do our best with what we've got and minimise inequalities and try to maximise what we're doing with our limited resources, which seems fine in paper, but as you said, very difficult to um, implement. I think I think it it it, it does in in one respect, and I as I said, I, I think there was an enormous amount of anxiety and moral distress in the pandemic about what people were doing, and what they were doing, what they were do, whether it was the right thing to be doing. But I, I do think that that we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we do this every day at a much lower level and are good at doing it in many respects because we focus on the person that we have in front of us what we can do for that person that is useful and we're very comfortable with looking at grades of treatment levels of treatment trials of treatment periods of treatment those all those other aspects of providing care that are not really brought into a lot of the pandemic triage discussion papers I can't believe I'm going to ask the the Dean of the Faculty of Intensive Care this, but what do you think we need more of? Is it more ICU, more HDU, more ward provision, more community provision, or better public health? If you had to add to the services you've got at the moment. Yeah. I would say, and I'd say this as an intensivist at the end of the chain, I think we need to have more conversations with our patients about what they want and what what we can realistically achieve and that should be our responsibility as healthcare professionals at every step and every stage because I think the idea that we can continue to give more and more treatment more to more and more people is not a realistic one because we know that that is not an effective use of of the healthcare resources that we have. We have to bite the bullet and have conversations with people about what we can achieve for them. So we know that sometimes we don't get things right um, and it's sometimes difficult to work out who is going to benefit from intensive care. Do you think there's a role for trials of ICU? I do, and I think there's a good evidence base to show that trials of, of treatment uh, in intensive care have have produced benefit. And for me, one of the classic examples is haematological malignancy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the mortality from haematological malignancy 20, 30 years ago was, was 90%. It's down to sort of 40% and falling. And that comes from earlier admission to intensive care to give lower grade levels of treatment, being a little bit more aggressive. Um, in the early stages of admission and being prepared to acknowledge when the treatment plan isn't going as hoped and and recognising that the the condition isn't survivable. 
So for me, there is evidence to show that you can make a difference overall and that intervening earlier is is a benefit to more patients. So we should be be willing to look at this. And if you are going down the route of a trial of ICU, what would determine its success? What sort of you know, what would be your outcomes or your markers that you would be looking for? Are they is it all physiology at that early stage? Well, I think one of the things that I am really keen on is that the intensive care as a specialty gets in earlier into a patient's pathway of care and has the opportunity to speak to the patient and the family themselves about what they want, what their goals of treatment are, and what they envisage. So we can properly explore what that individual would determine to be a successful treatment and what they would consider to be burdensome treatment. Because too often we're too far down in the in the chain and left to guess. And I, I think that that creates a lot of problems for us. So I'd like us to get in there earlier, which of course means we need we need more intensive okay. yes. in the hospital. <laughs> and do you think that the recent pandemic has changed the public's view of resource allocation and the the role of critical care within hospitals? I definitely think it's changed people's perception of, of the role of critical care because I think now people understand, they've seen what it what it is, what it does. Um, a lot of the television pictures were very, very graphic. So we might need to row back a little bit from some of that to show some of the successes um, of intensive care provision. But I think they've seen it now. They understand it a little better. Um, but I think we've got to build on that and and actually educate more so that people understand what intensive care can and cannot do for people. This is just, just a, as a sort of final question. I feel like Colombo here um uh, at the very end, we've talked an awful lot about the life-saving nature of ICU. Um, and we, in anaesthesia, often think about life-saving operations like cancer surgery. But what about life-enhancing ones? Do you think that somebody's pain could be worse than death? Thinking from an orthopaedic hip point of view, do you think that there's a danger that these very important life-enhancing operations can get lost in the triage i think for me i i am not a healthcare economist so so i don't have that familiarity with with the concept of of quality of life where where pain and other factors are brought in but i have been involved in in nice work in the past in their appraisal committees and that whole concept of qualities quality adjusted life years where you look at a treatment or an intervention and, and identify the benefits of it in a properly holistic sense, not just in terms of survival or functional outcome, but, but many of those other social and societal benefits. I think that quality approach can be very helpful and we, we should be recognising that that is benefit, that there are, for some people, procedures that are well worth the benefit for them, even if objectively you may say well that is not a cancer operation and that's where the health economists can come in and show that that is beneficial. Danny thank you so much 
um, this has been hugely um, informing. It's been wonderful to speak to you and uh, for sharing your experience both as a clinician and as Dean of uh, the Faculty of Intensive Care uh, Medicine. Uh, thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Um, ESIAC releases monthly podcasts on the website and various streaming platforms and we hope that you will join us for the next one. Take care.